Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Second Act Actors. I'm your host, Dr. Janet McMorty, and I was and still am a medical doctor simultaneously trying to pursue a career in acting. This episode, my guest is Emily Nixon. Emily is a first act actor. She went to theater school and has been acting her entire life. She's also now a filmmaker, very successful filmmaker, actually. Massive trigger warnings for this episode, as you may have seen on my uh, social media. Make sure to pay attention to the show notes below for times when these possible triggers can occur, because Emily has a really difficult story to tell about her time in theater school. And so we take a deep, very honest, very critical, vulnerable, dark, deep dive into acting teachers, schools and studios that have institutionalized and normalized abusive behavior in the name of training. And we talk about that quite a bit. We also take a deep dive into the body's response to this and how it's incredibly difficult to be open emotionally, professionally, personally, and vulnerable, which obviously we need to do as actors. And, you know, we would like to do as human beings if you are coming from a place of fear and not feeling safe, which for Emily, and I know she's not alone in this, um, for a lot of people who went through theater school and acting schools were not able to be both emotionally vulnerable, open because they were not feeling safe because of this, again, normalized abusive behavior in the, uh, you know, thought that that was making you a better actor. So uh, it's an incredible episode. Emily is very, again, open with me and her story. I appreciate her so much. But please take a look at the show notes for these trigger warnings. Also, if you ever wanted to hear me rant about my medical career, the healthcare system, etc, etc, which I do kind of dip and dabble in other episodes. But this one, I go on a bit of a tirade. Uh, I hope you're ready for for it. Uh, It's more of a conversation that Emily and I have. It's not so much me interviewing her. She asked me a lot of questions about my career in medicine, vice versa, her career in acting and theater school and kind of the, you know, kind of hells that both of these training institutions brought upon us as human beings and how we are now, you know, learning to thrive coming out of that, um, kind of coming out of these institutions. I'm going on a bit of a ramble here, as is the episode, you'll hear me rambling, but I hope you enjoy it. She and I met in an acting class together, and we've, you know, kept in contact ever since. I appreciate her so much. Thank you, Emily, for being so open with your story. I hope you all enjoy the beautifully talented, wonderful, lovely, logical-brained, I love your brain, Emily, Emily Nixon. I'm talking mainly to people who had a career, had a life, and then switched to acting. It's kind of, you had your first act, me as a doctor, second act, acting. You are one of the offshoot episodes as an actor, because you, this is what you do and you do it well. Yeah, tell me your story. Acting was the first thing I ever said I wanted to be when I was a kid, and that never changed, uh, with the brief exception of I wanted to be a secret agent at one time. Um... And I, I wanted to also be a visual artist, and I'm still a visual artist, but I don't like it's more just for pleasure and not for not for work. Um, my friends always used to joke about how 
how lucky I was that I always knew what I wanted to do. And, you know, as much as I love acting, my joke back was, would have been easier if I, if I had always known I wanted to be a dentist. But, <laughs> um, but no, I, I, that's never changed for me. I always knew what I wanted to do. And I can be a bit of a terrier when it comes to like big life things where it's like, no, this is what I'm going to do. And I'll just keep doing it. And I also love it. And it's, yeah, just definitely what I what I've always wanted to do. And where did that come from? Like, do you do you have a memory of saying, "Oh, I want to be an actor," or was it always just something that was there? It's always something that was there. It was literally like, you know, and my my parents tell me this as well. But like, ever since I was three or four, or you know, just just a little kiddo, being like, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" That was always what I said. Um, and I think it was just because I loved all the kid versions of it, like running around pretending to be other people or other characters or animals, things like that. I don't, I don't particularly know where it came from. I just kind of knew. Yeah. Like just pure imagination that you loved and creative exactly. growing up. Yeah. Were your parents very, or are your parents very creative people? My parents are both um, veterinarians. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, they're both like specialist veterinarians. Uh, so my mom's a geriatric feline practitioner and my uh, stepdad is a veterinary pathologist. So, um, but both big, big lovers of the arts. And like, my grandfather was um, a mathematician, he was a a theoretical geometrist, but a huge lover of um, like chamber music. And so there was always like a huge arts aspect. And like, um, for example, my my grandfather, my grandparents were refugees from Germany in World War Two. And um, he traveled through like, Czechoslovakia, and then like the, the Quakers snuck him into the States and then he snuck into Canada, but he brought his cello the entire way, like almost nothing, but he brought his freaking cello, which is huge. So there's like, my family's largely scientists and, you know, left brain sort of folks, but with a huge love for the arts. And a respect for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's definitely that, that story of your grandfather that's incredible yeah. right like that's yeah well, that needs to be a movie that needs to be a uh, that's, that's amazing <laughs> but again that yeah the respect for it because there's lots of people who i've chatted with who've come from you know parents who've been very logical analytical go to school to become the dentist to become the doctor lawyer you know profession right and they yeah they like the arts but not enough to respect it as a career path Mm. Yeah. Did you find, was that always something that your parents, you know, said, yeah, go for it, Emily, we love what you're doing? Or was there a bit of pushback? No, they've always been super supportive. Yeah, I'm incredibly lucky that way. My, my mom raised me by herself for most of my life. And, you know, I got a stepdad when I was 10. So ever since I was little, she was like, just do what you're passionate about, which is so, you know, freaking lucky. Yeah. Am I allowed to ask you a question? Sure. Was yours that way? Were your parents like, how did they feel about you being an artist? I was a very creative person growing up. And just having this this show, thinking back, you know, to the memories of my childhood. And I have very, I have very creative parents. Both my parents are musicians. My dad was a dancer and done some acting. And my mom, you know, plays guitar and the bagpipes. And my dad plays the bagpipes. And I always had really creative people in our house and in my life. But they were also very, like, logical-brained as well, 
too. And so there was never really a push to go any one direction. Again, very supportive, saying do whatever you love. And I did truly love the arts and the creativity. I was in band, I was in choir, I was in theater. But I did really, I do truly love the science of what I do. And so that kind of pushed me. I think my logical brain definitely took over when I said, what do I want to be when I grow up? I was like, sure, I would have loved to go gone to theater school. I'd love to go gone to any of that stuff. But I was like, you know what? I do like the science. Let's go that way. But then, of course, mm-hmm. now I'm realizing I completely shut out the, the creative part of my brain for 20-odd years to get where I am to be a doctor. And now I'm kind of feeling the, I don't want to say consequences, because consequences sound super dramatic, but feeling the, the urge to get back into that creative part. <laughs> Take me back to, okay, you decide you want to be an actor. Yeah. Then how did you get to where you are now? Tell, tell me the path that you went. I actually have gone a pretty traditional route. I, you know, went to a regular East Van High School. And then I, I did go to a, like an arts magnet school in Fort Langley mm. for a year. And then uh, I transitioned into theater school. I did drop out. I dropped out of theater school initially and went to India to go do some theater for a while, which was great and, you know, not very traditional. But um, I did that. And then I restarted theater school and then dropped out again. And then I finally restarted theater school a third time. And then I finished it through. So yeah, I I did go the like theater school um, into the industry route. Mm -hmm. Where did you go to theater school? Um, I went to X University, which we used to call Ryerson University, but um, yeah, so traditional conservatory four-year program went through that. Yeah. And that's what brought you from Vancouver to Toronto? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I lived in Montreal in between and then in, uh, I lived in Montreal and then in Nelson, BC. And then uh, I love, I love your face because yeah. it's like, you know, all the BC Vancouver places. And then finally to Toronto. And I was like, I hate Toronto. I never want to live in Toronto. I wanted to go to the National Theatre School like so badly. And I was so set on that. And I was doing like a 17 year old like follow your dreams blindly sort of thing at the time take big risks so I made some really like wild risks like I moved to Montreal because I was like if I want to go to national theater school like I got I had a call back in the audition process so I was like oh no next year's the year and then so I was just like I'm just gonna move to Montreal and manifest my destiny which is nuts because I lived there and I moved in January and I'd never been there before and I had like two hundred dollars in my bank account i'd never lived away from my parents i'd never even had like a proper job it was it was a wild, that was one of the wilder choices i've ever made and i did not get into nts i got callbacks three years in a row for them but i didn't get in and i was like oh fuck it and i got into ryerson on the first try and that's just where i went even though i hated toronto <laughs> initially this is such a broad question, but I'm just so curious about like the audition process, getting into national theater school. Yeah. Like, what is theater school like? Theater school, well, I graduated in 2014, mm-hmm. so things have definitely changed. At least from what I'm hearing, things things are evolving. But the, it's you know it's a regular like two stage audition process. So you'll do your auditions. You'll get called in for an audition. You know, chosen from your. Like, because X University is a university, I had to have a certain grade point average, and you have to write, like, an essay to get in and regular university stuff. And then I had an audition. I made it through the audition process. You have to prepare, like, I think it's two contrasting monologues, and then a one-minute version of your favorite play. 
I think it's one minute or three minute. I don't remember. And then, yeah, you do your audition, you do your callback, and then you have an interview, and then you get accepted or don't get accepted. That, and then uh, then you go to the school. And for most theater schools in Canada, they have a... I mean, rigorous is... Rigorous is perhaps too kind of a word. They have a very cutthroat process where a lot of them... A lot of them cut, you know, 25% to 50% of their first year class. So you can go, you can spend, you know, six or $8,000 and then not, not be welcomed back into the second year. Whoa, I... Wow, really? Yep. How does that work? Or is it magic that you don't understand and suddenly you get a rejection slip? I mean, like, it's both things. It's, um, so there's like a, it's a really problematic, like very old school system. At least it was when, when I was going to theater school. And, you know, that was what all my friends across all different theater schools was saying was that it was like super problematic. I have a friend who's, well, a friendly acquaintance. He's black and he talks about like how he felt like he was too black for theater school. So like he was kicked out, but he felt like he just wasn't allowed to be like the fullness of who he was and his blackness and his black identity was not wanted. And he's certainly not the only person who felt that way. I had a class of 25 and uh, 23 of us were white. So that's pretty rough. But there's also, you know, a lot of people who have spoken out about eating disorders that they've formed or have been exacerbated through the theater school process. People like so much sexual harassment going on in theater schools. Like, te- like I had one prof while he was grading me, like while I was in his class who would text me or send me Facebook messages being like, Hey sexy, what are you doing right now at 2 AM? Yeah. Yeah. I believe he still teaches there. And I totally told another prof about him and they did nothing. But so yeah, it's, it's wild. And I would say overall, like, when I was in theater school and when I graduated, there is, I think people would call it like, like a tough, um, they would, they would refer to themselves as like tough or rigorous or like trying to toughen you up for the industry. But I really think it's fundamentally bullying. So myself and, and some other folks who were in my theater school at the time have, you know, reached out to some of the teachers and said like, hey, we need to talk about your process. And as folks who are still who are now like professionals within the industry, the way you taught us was not okay. And you are still teaching. So like we, you know, I can't get into the details of it because we've all signed contracts and such, but there was one prof that a group of us went through um, professional mediation with and they were incredibly receptive and they were absolutely wonderful. And they were like, yeah, I really, you know, in the 10 years afterwards, I really see how the way I was teaching was based out of fear. And it was like to diminish the students because I was so afraid of not cutting enough people that I was, you know, yeah, they face the teachers face a lot of pressures, pressures from above from like faculty heads and things like that to cut their numbers. Um, Like I have one very dear friend who was put up in front of the class, the acting class one time and told like, you have no friends um, because you're so weird. No one can like you. Um, And this was, you know, under the auspice of pedagogy. Um, Another friend, you know, there were there were two women in our class and one of them was doing quite well and the other wasn't. They were very close. And the one who was getting the good grades was told that she shouldn't associate with her friend because her friend was bringing her down. Um, 
Oh, so much like this. So much like this. I was told um, that I was too intelligent to ever be a successful actor. Okay. Yeah. You know, looking back, this was like, this was why I left theater school the first, um, the first and second times was, um, it was just, it was just brutal um, to be told like, you know, and I, I wonder now looking back, like, would they have said that to a man? Great point. Yeah, I, thanks. I was told like, you're too intelligent. You're, um, it will only get in your way. Uh, you know, a classic little quip from the main acting teacher at the time was, um, it doesn't, you don't have to be stupid to be an actor, but it sure helps. Oh. Yeah. Right. I had a lot of shame about the way my brain worked yeah. for a long time. And so I would, I mean, I, I was like 20 something, like in my early twenties at the time. So I would do silly games like, you know, I would lessen my language and like my capacity to use larger words. And I would just like pretend not to understand things sometimes. Like I would kind of pepper it throughout as like a sort of game of like, oh, if I pretend I don't understand this thing that this person is saying, they'll think I'm less smart than I am. Like I was just trying to kind of game it and look like I didn't understand things. Um, I was ashamed of my high grades in my academic classes Think, things like that. Like, it was just a bit of a nightmare when I was going. Yeah. And that's not just my experience. That's the experience of a lot of people who were going through the theater school process at that time. So I'm going to say, Janet, you probably, like, you, yeah, you might have missed out on the connections that I specifically got from that mm -hmm. and the training. But holy moly, was there a lot that came with it that was, like, really, really tough and brutal it's kind of more like a hazing, to be honest. Oh, I have so much going through my brain right now about, you know, attacking people at their most vulnerable, at their most vulnerable age, about everything that is just so what makes you as a human insecure. But my biggest thing is, like, why? Like, what is the why? Why do they cut people if, like, one, they're not going to make money, like, if they don't have people in their class? Like, is it to show, haha, we cut people? But, like, why that? But why treat people like this? Like, what's the end goal? Is it to have you ready for this cutthroat industry that now we know that like, isn't really a thing? Like, what? What? Why, Emily? Why? <laughs> I have so much going on in my brain. <laughs> I, I think that I think that that's certainly an aspect of it. Yeah. There's like a what I what I perceive to be like a cloaking of intentions with that yeah. of like, oh, well, I'm trying to toughen you up so you can make it in the industry because this is what the industry is really like. And, um, you know, I'll never be as tough as the casting directors out there or the directors or producers out there, um, which isn't really true. No, <laughs> I don't think it's, no, I don't. Yeah, haven't seen it. Like, yet. yeah, I mean, like if people don't like you. They just won't hire you. They won't be like, you're a terrible person. I'm going to destroy you. Like, uh, they just say no thank you and they move on. Exactly. They don't have time to be so douchey. <laughs> yeah, right? I think there's also like a some sort of pressure to maintain like an elitism within these conservatory programs. And, you know, if you're one of, you know, eight or whatever who made it out when they started with 20, that looks good for you. Um that's, you know, my best understanding of what it is. I certainly disagree with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's really satisfying now to have friends and peers from that time, you know, who I observed being treated 
really cruelly to go back and teach within these institutions. And, you know, we'll really frankly talk between us and they'll say, like, I'm going back to teach, like, in the way that I wanted to be taught or, like, in the, like, I'm going back to try and counteract, like, the the bullshit that we had to deal with. Right. Like, I want to be so good to these students and to show them that, like, you can be both kind and artistically rigorous. Yes. that That's a great kind and artistically rigorous. I like that. So I had a chat with somebody else very similar to you who has been through the theater school process. And we found a lot of really interesting parallels with the idea between theater school and medical school with mm. the idea of this makes medical school sound super dramatic. I had a, I had a great time, but it also was the most <laughs> stressful time of my life yeah. to try and not so much beat you down, but see how much you can handle emotionally, but in yeah. different ways, theater school was prepping you to show all of your emotions and open them mm. up to the world so you can share them with the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm for good and for bad from for an emotion your emotional state where medical school did the complete opposite it said mm. how much can we throw at you that's horrific and how much can you show nothing both of them with the goal of kind of seeing how much you can handle but the complete opposite result rewarding and celebrating in theater school the ability to be emotionally vulnerable but in medical school rewarding and celebrating the ability to be emotionally resistant to not show emotions. And I know we've talked, we talked about this in our, in the acting class where you and I were in together, but how difficult I'm finding it to break down that, that has been built up in me from the medical school process. Mm. So I guess my question for you is in your experience, have you noticed any other differences besides that between people who've gone to theater school and people like me who haven't and are now trying this industry, trying to do this acting thing. And it doesn't need to be like, oh, one's better than the other, right? But like, have you noticed any differences? I think that um, first I want to circle back on, on the way you characterize theater school as like trying to break you down in order to create an emotional openness. Mm-hmm. I don't think it does that. I think it breaks you down but creates different guards like you know how when you have an injury your other muscles tend to guard around that injury to protect it Mm -hmm. i think that theater school does something similar interesting so because you you know you experience this emotional um, and psychological trauma or bullying a lot of us um you just create a guard an emotional guard around it so i think i think that you know, I was talking with a friend who's a psychologist and he was saying that as humans, and I'm sure you know this already, but it was news to me that like, we, you know, we can't really take risks unless we feel safe. Right. And when you're in an environment where you're feeling um, like you might be emotionally attacked or humiliated or shamed in front of a group of your peers, um, you're certainly not going to be open and take risks and show what's really going on for you. So I think that it can create kind of an illusion of emotional openness, but I don't believe that you can, that anyone can really flourish or be artistically um, whole or present in an environment where they're afraid that they're going to be emotionally assaulted Mm, at any time. You know, it's like the, the Shelley Duvall story of working on the shining, right? Like she was so terrified through the whole thing 
because of what she was being put through, like what we're seeing on film is like, yeah, it's genius, but it's just her being terrorized by a tyrant director. And fundamentally, like, I don't ever think that an artistic greatness is worth, like, is worth more than people's lives and people's mental health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, there's never like an end justifies the means here for me. But going back to, to your question that you had asked, do I see a difference? In some ways, yes. Um, there is a shared, a shared experience, truthfully, of like, you know, we've, those of us who have gone through theater school, and I'm not exaggerating, but most of us go, oh, yeah, yeah, like there's that kind of knowing, like, yep. we've been through, we've both been through that thing mm. that we have, um, and usually some like war stories and gallows humor, yeah. Exactly, mm -hmm. right? But in terms of quality of work, no. I, I don't really see a difference. I see some, like, greater knowledge about things or greater references. Like, you know, I'll be able to say, like, when I see a performance um, on film or something like that, I can say, like, okay, they're doing... This is, like, a send-up to, uh, like, a pachinko style of clown. I can see that they're doing that because, you know, we've gone through... I can say, like, oh, that's clearly a Commedia dell'arte, like, modernization. We're seeing the different tropes. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I have all that that kind of historical um and that kind of just knowledge yeah. but again like it's so hugely so hugely slanted towards a western perspective mm. the studies that we did like i can't tell you anything about like traditional indigenous theater practices because of my theater school training i can talk forever about aristotle's poetics though you know <laughs> so i can talk to you a lot about shakespeare but i can't talk to you in much depth about like buto practice mm -hmm. i have a vague understanding but not a real knowledge right yeah so i don't know i don't think you're any worse off for not having gone to theater school and i feel a sense of admiration in some ways like i'm somebody who has a lot of curiosities a lot of interests i also love anatomy and the way the body works and i'm probably the only you know an anatomy is like such a rigorous boring thing to learn but I also really love it and I, I love so much I you know about science and mm -hmm. I was gonna say math but that's a giant lie <laughs> um <laughs> just about you know so many things to learn in this world yeah. that I think you're in some ways mm, you know have a more rich perspective yeah and that's the that's the vibe I get from you know, from a lot of the other second act actors I talk to, right, is the ability to bring in a rich background from rich experiences. But there's good and there's bad to both ways to getting into this industry, right? And I think totally. we pull from our experiences no matter what. Like, it's not like you just sat in X university and didn't leave the classroom for the years that you were there. Like, you were building stuff. I just had mm -hmm. a quick a thing, like, triggered in my brain I wanted to ask you really quick. Yeah. Do you think the reason why that they were teaching in the way that they were teaching, was it prepping you for the rejection that comes, that is just innate in this? Is, is that the why? Like, because that was a big thing that I think a lot of, I know for me, and I remember my husband saying this to me, being like, oh, acting, you're going to have a tough time. There's a lot of rejection. And as somebody who has not had much rejection in my life, to be honest, like academically, I am very privileged socially, right? It, it can be a tough thing 
to just be constantly rejected as part of an innate part of acting. Yeah. Do you think that was their underlying reason? Mm. I don't know. That's the same kind of logic as like, I'm going to be so mean to my kid <laughs> yeah. so that they're ready for all the mean people in the world. Like, no, <laughs> so mean. that's not what we do. Yeah. We teach people like that they have an innate sense of worth and that they have innate value because the yeah. industry will take care of the rejection on its own. Great point. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, perhaps that was part of the logic of it. Yeah. You know, you know, fuck, there's so many teachers who are each unique, complex human beings yeah. and professionals in their own right and have their own neuroses and fears and dreams and aspirations. Who knows why they taught the way that I did? Yeah. And it's so funny talking to some of them now who have completely remember my experience differently. Like I, you know, I work with some of the teachers that, that taught me and, you know, who, who I have distinct memories of them, you know, expressing negative opinions about my work, but who now will say things to others like, Oh, Emily was like one of my favorite students. I knew she was a genius the second she stepped into my room. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure you didn't. And I have, I have the diary entries to prove it with like the tear stains all over them. <laughs> so funny well I, I i have a question for yeah. you too like god i mean same same question back at you like do you feel that the chat like the shittiness that you were put through in medical school mm -hmm. actually do you feel like it actually helpfully readied you to be a doctor yeah i genuinely do i think where i struggled was almost rejecting, rejecting that teaching. Because I think a lot of us doctors, when we get into the medical industry, have this brutal realization that there are so many things fighting against us that we can't control, that we were just not taught about. And it's not to do with the art and love of medicine. It's admin, it's politics, it's all of this stuff that we just were not we're not exposed to, or they tried to expose it to us, but we were like, no, I just want to help everyone. I just love the science. I love the medicine. I love talking to people. And that's genuinely why a lot of us went into medicine. But I think the medical training was, again, for good and for bad, trying to be like, this is going to suck because you're going to have horrific things happen to patients that you care about and there's nothing you can do about it because it comes from a, uh, you know, a systems standpoint. So you better get the emotional, like, rigor built up in you so you can just shut that off so you don't get emotionally invested, so you don't burn out. And I mean, that's what we're seeing now with the pandemic, right? Why 95% of doctors are experiencing immense amounts of burnout, depression and suicidality. Because we're all like, this world is fighting against everything that we love, and we're trying to do the best that we can, but I'm going on a huge rant here. No, I'm, I'm so feeling it. You know, you know what I mean, right? Like it, it was, I think they, were, they genuinely were trying to show us how harsh it can be, but all of us in our naivete were like, no, I can't wait to get in the real world medicine and I'm going to change it and I'm going to be great and my patients are going to love me and they're gonna, it's going to be awesome and I'm going to do so much good 
And then you start getting into the real world in healthcare. And it's, and it's, they call it like the five year itch, like five years into practice, which is where I'm at right now. And you're like, this is not what I thought it would be. But then you look back at your training, you're like, oh, they tried to warn us. They tried to get us prepared. So I don't, I don't know. Cause I, I went to McMaster and McMaster mm-hmm. Medical School. I know. I saw your shirt one time. <laughs> yeah. That's my, uh, they, they were, they're a very unique medical school in the fact that in the seventies, they accepted anyone with any degree. You didn't have to have a science degree. Oh, I had wow. somebody in my class with a PhD in film studies. Wow. Yeah, which I think, so they wanted more well-rounded human beings, and they taught a lot of the kind of what we call like the fluffy stuff, right? It's called professional competencies, where you talk about your feelings and stuff like that. I mean, it's not perfect, but it was, it was like a nice part of my medical training. So I do believe in the way that we were trained, I think, brought grittier, you know, more emotionally intelligent doctors out of that. They try. (laughs) But still, I think, again, I think we, I definitely fought against that rigor and kind of during my training. And then now I'm noticing, man, they were trying. But I just... I was like, no, no, everything's going to be fine. And then you get into the real world and you're like, oh. And then you inherit, like, and then you got a pandemic. Oh, yeah, that's At your five-year itch period. Like, jeepers. Yeah, Yeah, so I I don't really know if I answered your question, but I just, it, yeah, I, I think, I think there was good intentions with what they do. I don't agree with you know, the long hours, the idea of, oh, back in my day, this is how we trained in medicine. So you have to train like this too. I think, yeah, I don't think there's a, there's a right or wrong way to do it. We just haven't, we haven't figured it out yet. I think everything's changing and I'm sure it's changing in theater school as well too, in medical school, it's training as people are speaking up saying this is not okay. And we're seeing it and we're seeing it coming out in the practicing physicians who have now said, you're right students. This is not okay. You're right. And we've done a lot of introspection about, you know, our training, right? Well, I think, no, you've probably had, you know, similar things, you know, with me too. And probably, you know, a lot of people were called out at that time as, you know, in in your training institutions as they were in ours. Yeah. Yeah. And just like, you know, George Floyd's murder, which finally somehow made white people care about you know black lives for 10 seconds um it just like i think these things happen across all of the industries right yeah Yeah. but you and i've kind of said opposite opposite things there right like you have said that you feel that the harshness in your training was of benefit and i've said that i don't think it was yeah yeah i don't know if benefit's the right word I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not, I have a tough time eloquently saying, because it was, it was hell. Like the, the med- like residency training is pure hell. Is it just the hours? Or like the hours what is it? and just hours and the, I don't know. It's not the people. The people are great, right? Again, like I make the joke about gallows humor. Like that's the best part about medicine is being with other people in medicine because you're all like, same like theater school, like we got through this. Yeah, it's the hours and the expectations. And I think the slow realization of, you know, what you do, what you love in medicine is not really what's important to society, to your patients, to the government and stuff like that. It's tough. It's I tough. hate that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. I, and I think the big thing we were like you were talking about the Me Too movement, and I think we, 
we in, as women in medicine are definitely noticing a lot of things. I mean, women in medicine make significantly less money than men in medicine who do the exact oh, same fuck. thing. Well, it's, it, it, it's one of those things that it, I think it is changing slowly. But, you know, as a male doctor, the like stereotypical male doctor, the white male the doctor white, with the jawline. Yeah, exactly. Right. Preferably British accent because he sounds a lot smarter when there's an accent involved. But like they can get away. Unless it's. Yeah. I was going to say, unless it's Cockney. That, that's true. Then you're just like... You want a doctor God. with RP, not yeah, with Cockney. With, yeah, exactly. Well, they, <laughs> they can get away with being a bit more standoffish. Where mm. women, I think, the reason why we make less, that they're like in my opinion, is we see less patients throughout the day because we spend more time with them. Because if we don't, we're seen as rude. Oh my God. But I will tell you... I was going to say the only doctors that I've been dangerously misdiagnosed by were all men. And so there is really good evidence showing that women are better surgeons, uh, better surgical outcomes, better medical outcomes, but men make way more money. It's because it's we get paid per person. It's interesting because they, if you look at complaints to our college, like our doctor college, mm, um, yeah. most complaints against men are um, like there's very, there's, not that many, but like they're, yeah, like something went wrong. Misdiagnosed, like something dangerous occurred. Yeah. Uh, like, so yeah. that is why complaints should happen to the college, right? Like what you experienced. Yeah. All, like 98% complaints against women are, she wasn't nice to me. She was rude. She was mean. I didn't like her tone. She didn't spend enough time with Fuck me. Off. She was late. And you're like, this doesn't happen to men. No, that's trash. It's trash. We talked a little bit just on our emails as a complete 180 about grit and the book that I'm reading, Grit. And I think you said you've read it. Angela Duckworth, right? And hilariously for me, it's taking me forever to get through it. Clearly, I'm not a very gritty person. I know I'm not a very no, gritty No, clearly person. you are because you're continuing to work Well, there it. you go. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Boom. But I did, I did her like grittiness test and Ooh. I was not very gritty because I tend to flit between interests, right? Okay. I get, there's the idea, I, the idea that she talks about being, it's, it feels really good being a promising beginner. Ooh, doesn't it? Right? Yeah. It feels really good. And I, I have been that many times and it feels great. Me too. It's the best. It's the best. But then you kind of yeah. get to the point where in order to kind of compete against the the big kids, you got to put in more effort. So you either put in more effort and you become the gritty person or you just say, mm, meh, I'll just put that hobby aside and find the next new one so I can feel that serotonin boost of being a promising beginner. So as someone who's been an actor and stuck mm-hmm. with the acting, mm-hmm. what are your secrets and mm-hmm. what kind of lights your fire on the days you're not feeling so gritty? Um, I think, you know, deadlines are extremely helpful. The fact that if I get, if I have an audition that comes in from my agent, I'm not going to not do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like there is an expectation. We're in a business relationship. I have to get her that tape. I have to get her that, you know, that recording. Um, so that really helps. I think if, if I didn't have a network of people expecting things of me, like, you know, when I'm in, when I'm working on a theater project, you're not just going to not show up to rehearsal one day. You're going to screw everyone over. If you do that, it's not okay. You're going to let people down. So I think in the same way that, you know, having a gym buddy 
can help. Like you have, you are accountable to somebody else to continue with your goals, building a network of people who rely on you in some capacity, whether that's, you know, they professionally rely on you because they have to call the rehearsal if you're not there or, you know, your agent's going to look bad. You're going to sever that relationship if you don't deliver your end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. That's extremely helpful. But I know, um, cause I'm a writer as well. Um, I have kind of mocked up a similar situation for myself. You know, a lot of people do this by having a writing group where maybe you meet once a month or every two weeks. If you don't have material to share, it, it lets down everyone else because you're, you've all agreed to participate in this network. Um, so I think, you know, as a writer, I'll do things like I'll, this is like kind of, you know, a, a, a wild move, I guess, is like I'll hire, uh, I'll reach out to the, I'll reach out to the actors and say, hey, I'm writing something for you. Because if I don't deliver them something, I'm like, that's so hurtful. <laughs> You know, or like, like I, I kind of build in false, um, like networks of, of necessity. Yeah. Um, that's really helpful. So like if I weren't, if I, if I was an actor who didn't have an agent or something like that, mm-hmm. I would, you know, and I would encourage people who are in that position to do something similar. So whether it's as simple as having a class where like, if you haven't prepped your scene, you're failing your scene partner, you're failing your teacher, you're failing the rest of the class. Um, that, that social stress is so helpful and so productive, I find. Um, and then also my bullishness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can be extremely single-minded and extremely stubborn. And, um, I've just decided that this is what I'm doing. And yeah, no, we keep walking on this path. Like even if, yeah, we just, this is just the direction we're going in. So we're going to keep walking. Yeah. Yeah. You're just doing it. This is what you chose. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always like, I've always felt like a, you know, a sense of calling towards it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I love it. And, you know, even if you're an actor who's not in a class, like I, I will also, you know, I have a friend, uh, another professional actor who's a friend of mine and we do an actor's gym once a week. Cool. So we have like, we'll each work for an hour. We do a two hour session once a week um where we both just work scenes yeah nice that accountability and And yeah and accountability i like that social social stress that's Mm -hmm. really and yeah i think you don't want to let you don't want to let people down i'm i'm of the same vein right like i hate i would hate that feeling of like yeah like you're letting people down yeah for sure i think most of us feel that way that makes that makes good community (laughs) yeah yeah exactly right it's like building that community yeah, absolutely. Do you have any crazy, fun, on-set stories? I guess I have more of a thoughtful on-set story that's coming to mind. Um, so I spent a lot of time... I, I, how do I want to start this? I spent a lot of time... So I was doing crew work for a while as well, working in the electrics department. So I was working on Umbrella Academy for three months and doing um, any kind of on-set work is so good for an actor um, because you're just, whether you're holding a light or, you know, doing, putting up a black or whatever, you're just there watching actors and directors work all day from really close. Um, So I was working on Umbrella Academy and I remember how 
you know, that's like a big TV series. There are like celebrities that are on that show. And I just remember noticing how much time they were all spending on their phones. Like as soon as, as soon as they would call cut, um, people's phones would be out, right? Like they would just keep them in their back pocket or whatever. Um, and they'd be on Instagram or whatever. And you're like, man, you're like number four on the call sheet for this huge series. And you're still just like living in this like aspirational world of Instagram between takes. And then when I was in uh, Shazam, it would have been like an AD who, who brought me to like from base camp to, um, we had like a green room there, uh, close to set. And they were like, Oh, how's your day going? And I, and, uh, I think I asked them, I said, you know, how, how's your day? And they were like, ah, it's fine. Living the dream. Right. And, uh, they were like, how's yours? And I was like, actually so good. Amazing. Like I, there's nowhere else on this planet that I want to be. I am. This is like me at my happiest right now. I am actually living my dream. Like not in a sarcastic way. Um, I didn't say that part cause it would have been like pedantic and kind of assholey, <laughs> but I just like, I guess I notice a lot on set because I've, I've spent a lot of time on set. Like, my partner's a department head as well. So I, I get to be on a lot of different sets and um, of, like, big-ass projects. And it's funny how quickly normal changes. Mm. Like, how you can spend forever as an actor, like, wanting to be on set. But then when you get on set, like, oh, it sucks because they don't have a meal you you would enjoy. Or it sucks because they want you in makeup too early. Or... It's just boring because the director wants 1,800 takes of this thing or, you know, your co-star is kind of an ass or whatever. And I don't know, I guess it just, it gives me more perspective because it's like, you know, some, some really incredible actors who are celebrities, you know, we're working, are working on different series and I'll watch them and they'll just be like so unhappy. And I'm like, very much like we tell ourselves as actors and you know, as actors, like, I, I don't, I don't know if you're a series regular, I, I, I'm not aware of that, but like as actors who are always like kind of looking for contract work, Mm -hmm. you, you tell yourself like, Oh, I'll be happy once I book this. Oh, if I got like, if I was number, number one on the call sheet, then I'd be happy. But then when you actually see the people who are the number ones on the call sheets, like their happiness is still out of reach. Yeah. We are always aspiring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, like the aspirational living that doesn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great teacher for me to be like, Oh, you know, when I was in theater school, I was like, Oh, when I'm an actor member, then I'll know I've really made it. When I'm, you know, when I'm in this kind of movie, then I'll know I've really made it. But of course the bar is always moving. Yes. Um, so that's a great, that's a great reminder. And also just like, I have the benefit of perspective of working. Um, you know, I've worked as an electric, I've worked as a scenic painter. I've worked, um, Obviously, my main experience is as an actor and also as a filmmaker. Um, like, I'm a writer-director as well. And I've been a... I was a location support. I've done just so many different things in film. Uh, I've produced a lot of things as well. Um, it's just like you really get to see it from all aspects. And you learn how different it is when you come to set as an actor versus when you come to set as an electric. Yeah. You know, like people are just like, oh, okay, you're here, jump in, get to your work. But as an actor, they're like, thank you so much for coming. Um, have you had something to eat? Can I show you where craft is? Like, it's so different. 
So just like never, ever, ever to be the actor who shows up on set and is bitching about your start time mm. because your crew has been there for four hours or more. So I, I do remember one time on a set uh, for, for a big project, there was one of the lead actors who had to walk up the stairs. Like we were working inside a set that was like a big mansion and he had to walk up the stairs and say his line. And, you know, the director said, can you please do this? And and this actor said like, oh, now this day is boring and exhausting and I was there and I was like holding a 50 pound light and I was like absolutely shut it right now absolutely shut your mouth and I wasn't I wasn't yeah right like here take this light and obviously I couldn't say that and I I wouldn't have said that but it's just so good for me when I come on to a set as an actor mm-hmm. to like really be fucking gracious because everyone is way more tired than yeah. you and working way harder than yeah. you. I remember re- reading something or maybe it was a podcast I was listening to about acting and it was the re it was a realization for me as a naive person in this industry about how you as the actor, even though you may think you're the most important person there because literally everything is revolving around you like li- yeah. literally, but yeah. you are just the tiniest, tiniest cog in one gigantic big machine. So be yeah. fucking gracious. Yeah. And be present and enjoy mm-hmm. where you are. <laughs> Cause like you're saying, like I, a big thing for me is try is just putting away my phone whenever I'm on set. Cause I'm like, just be here. This is what you want. Put your damn phone away and experience this. Be present. It's hard, but Yeah. And be fucking gracious. Why are people... Why? Why? This industry's tiny. Don't be dick. Oh, well, like, you know, my partner is a gaffer. And uh, so that's the head of the electrics department. Mm-hmm. And has been told so many times, like, oh, this celebrity, like, you're not you're not supposed to look them in the eyes. Uh, you're not... Like... Oh, it's such, such nonsense. So bizarre. What a weird, weird world. So weird. Just be a human being. I know. Just be a human human and don't be weird. And enjoy the other human beings around you because they're also freaking fascinating. Yeah. And remember that, like, everyone you're working with is so good at their job. Like, the industry is so competitive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it really does make you appreciate the actors who do appreciate you. Like, yeah. I've done some background work. Like, when I was first starting out, I was doing I did a lot of background work. I That's just, good for perspective, it was, I bet. Yeah, and it, it was just fun. Like, I loved it. Like, okay. you know, I was, I was on um, uh, Nightmare Alley. It was the first movie that I ever I did. I was in that. Were you? Yeah. Amazing. And so, like, for me, I was just trying to escape somewhere that wasn't reality. And I couldn't go to Disney World, which was my favorite place on the planet. So I was like, okay, I'll just go on this set that's literally an escape from reality. And I just remember Tony Collette who is one of my favorite actresses of all time, was, like, we watched her, like, do basically a masterclass in acting for four days when I was on the set. She's amazing. Yeah, and she was the nicest person. Like, she's, there's, like, 50 of us, and every day she would just say, like, oh, thank you all, like, I appreciate you, thank you. And, like, Guillermo del Toro, same thing, was like, you guys are so great. I'm like, it takes literally nothing to be a nice human being, nothing out of your time and your energy. But you remember that. As, like, a little teeny person on the totem pole. <laughs> but you're not a teeny person. Right. Like, Good point. you're not a teeny person. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to sell a carnival, or yeah. I don't know what which of the sets you yeah, guys were carnival. on, but, mm-hmm. like, okay, it's really hard to sell a carnival if there's only two people there. Yeah. So you need us, damn it. <sighs> Anything that you are looking forward to this year? 
Yeah. They're all things where like, I'm trying to like hustle to get these things done, but I'm looking forward to, I want to get another film made this year, at least one more film. Uh, they're doing, they're shorts, so they're feasible, but I want to find a way to get at least one of my two finished scripts done this year. So it's, you know, last year was like a lot of writing. So this year needs to be about production. And, and I'm going to like, I'm, I'm going to a fest, film festival in San Jose, which will be fun. Yeah, just whatever film festivals, like I have a, a current um, short on the festival circuit. And so going to any cool festivals that I get into will be good. Any final kind of words for either people like myself who are changing into acting or simultaneously doing acting in their job, or just people in general who have been acting for a while and, you know, can be struggling in this weird February 2022 that we're living in? Well, I guess, you know, first of all, Janet, I want to say, like, don't diminish your work as an actor. Like, I feel like I feel like you were just Aww. kind of minimized yourself in a way there. But like, I really I think your work is dope. Oh, thank, and you. thank you. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Dude, like, don't don't sweep it under the rug because I was like super impressed by by your work that I saw in class. And I also think you're like such a cool person. And I have so much admiration for the fact that you're a fucking doctor <laughs> as well. Like, honestly, Janet, if I could live 800 lives at once, like this is me a little kid version of me right now wants to be an actor and a director and a writer and a lawyer and a producer and a doctor love it i want to be all of those things <laughs> and if i had oh and a translator too cool and if i had yeah i want to be all of those things and i want to go back to grad school and i want to like life is just so fucking cool man and it, the more like shit you learn like the fact that you're a doctor blows my mind it's so badass <laughs> thanks thank you <laughs> i don't feel like i'm I don't know that I'm in a position to give advice, but it's funny because our industry is so up and down that in 2020, I had all the advice to give because it was like a back-to-back -back year of acting work for nice. me. It was it was dope. Um, so I was like, oh, yes, here's all my advice. But because 2021 was like a really slow year for me, I'm like, I don't know. But that's just like the nature of it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think the thing I feel most qualified to do is to give the advice I was giving in 2020 so freely, which is the difference between what I was doing when I was booking a lot and before that when I hadn't been booking as much is nothing. The difference is nothing. The difference is other people in the world deciding to hire me, but I was working the exact same amount on my own art and on my own training. I was putting the same amount of preparation and time into all my auditions. Like, the difference is just that people all of a sudden decided to hire me, but I wasn't doing a damn thing differently. I think that's such a good point, right? Because we, we think it's all about us because our art is us, right? We are the product. But that's such a good point. Such a good point. So yeah, it's just up and down and up and down. And then the other advice that I can give is advice that I think I need to remember myself a lot, which is that my my self-worth is not related to how much I get hired or how much I don't. And that is like a constant, you know, drone note that I need to remember from myself yeah. of like, you know, if I can't really control whether I'm working or not, then that can't be where my self-worth is located. Yeah. And I'm saying that as advice that I need to take myself and I need to remember.
thank you everyone for tuning in and thank you, Emily, for being so open, honest, critical, questioning, passionate about your story and advocacy work. And I appreciate you again for taking the time out of, I know you're very busy schedule to, to share your story with me and with everyone else. I know, you know, you're not alone in uh, what you've experienced in uh, your acting career. And I hope now people realize, uh, unfortunately, if they have had similar situations to yourself, that they are not alone and that there are people out there who want to hear your story, share your story and empathize with, with your story. And we need to support each other. Actors need to support actors because this is a vulnerable career path. It's a vulnerable place to put ourselves in and we need to feel safe. Our body will not allow us to feel emotion and feel vulnerability that we need as actors and that we need as human beings to be good people in this world if we do not feel safe. Our body literally will not allow that. So uh, please read, reach out to myself if you need any resources for where to find uh, respect-oriented, respect, respectful acting coaches. Again, I make no money from the referrals that I will send you to. I wish I did. Haha. <laughs> but um, there are incredible acting coaches out there who come from a baseline level of respect, support, and safety to develop your career. I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye. Second Act Actors is produced and edited by me, Janet McMorty. Theme music by Guillaume. Additional sound editing by David Studio. Additional video editing by Jackie Wadewer. Show notes written by Sarah Hopkinson. I record using Riverside FM. If you're interested in developing an interview-based webcast like mine, I highly recommend this platform. Shoot me an email and I'll direct you to the wonderful folks there. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest, email me at secondactactors at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. My love language is words of affirmation, so compliments, constructive criticism, and feedback are always welcome and encouraged. Negative Nancys, Judgy McJudgersons, or Debbie Downers, unless you're Rachel Dratch, regarding me or my guests are not welcome. It takes serious courage to share your story with the world, so if you're tempted to negatively comment about someone else's story, please ask your therapist why you're such a garbage person. Save the drama for the stage. On that happy note, I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye!